Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. This evening's program is presented in conjunction with the exhibition Freedom Journey 1965, photographs of the Selma to Montgomery March by Stephen Summerstein, which is open through April 19th. Other featured exhibitions currently on display include Chinese American, Exclusion Inclusion, Holiday Express, which I'm sure you've seen when you came in, The Toys and Trains, from the Journey Collection, and Annie Leibovitz, a beautiful exhibition of her photographs called Pilgrimage. We just ask before I, I go on right now to, if anyone has a uh, cell phone or an electronic device, to please turn it off. And we have a house photographer tonight, so we uh, just ask also that no one takes any photographs. Tonight's program, the Voting Act of 1965, is part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, the heart of our public programs. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his support which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians to New York Historical. I'd also like to thank all our Chairman's Council members with us tonight for all their great work and support. Let's give them all a hand. We have a great crowd tonight. It's, it's so good to see this. I was just telling Randall Kennedy, our guest speaker, that um, his audience is growing. This is the third time we've had him back alone, and um, he does promise to return again. The program will last an hour and include a question and answer session, and we invite audience members to approach two standing mics in the aisles. And we ask that you do this so that everyone in the audience can hear you and those who listen to our recorded podcasts can hear you as well. So we are thrilled to welcome back Randall Kennedy, a former, a former clerk to Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall, and the Michael R. Klein Professor of Law at Harvard Law School. Professor Kennedy is the author of six books, including Race, Crime, and the Law, which received the Robert F. Kennedy Book Award. Professor Kennedy writes for a wide range of scholarly and general interest publications and is a member of the American Law Institute, the, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and the American Philosophical Association. He is also a charter trustee of Princeton University and a member of the bars of the Supreme Court of the United States and District of Columbia. His most recent book is for Discrimination, Race, Affirmative Action, and the Law. And so now I'd like you all with me to welcome Randall Kennedy. Thank you. Thank you for the generous introduction and for providing this uh, forum for, for me and, and for, for all of us. I plan to speak this evening about the Voting Rights Act of 1965. I uh, plan to proceed in the following way. I'm going to ask myself a couple of questions. And um, after I seek to answer those questions, the floor will be open. I'm sure that there'll be questions uh, that you will want to discuss. Questions like, what about this movie Selma that has uh, uh, attracted so much attention? Or what about the problem of uh, racially motivated violence in uh, the discussion in the history of the Voting Rights Act of 1965? What about some of the people, some of the martyrs that enabled this legislation to arise? So there, there are lots of questions. Those are some, and I'm sure that you have yet others. But let's get a few basic ones on the floor just to get things started. First of all, what is the Voting Rights Act of 1965? The Voting Rights Act of 1965 
is legislation that was passed on August 6, 1965. It was signed into law that very day enthusiastically by President Lyndon B. Johnson. It was passed overwhelmingly. The uh, House vote was 328 to 74. The Senate vote was 79 to 18. This is legislation that, is, um, that was passed pursuant to the 15th Amendment of the Federal Constitution. What's the 15th Amendment of the Federal Constitution? There were three great constitutional amendments passed in the aftermath of the Civil War. There was the 13th Amendment that was ratified in 1865 that abolished slavery. There was the 14th Amendment that was ratified in 1868 that provided for um, uh, that any person born within the jurisdiction of the United States became a citizen of the United States, and that also provided that the states would have to provide to all persons due process and the equal protection of the law. It provided other things as well, but those were, the, this, this, those were the sort of the central things, the most important things. And then there was the 15th Amendment. The 15th Amendment. 15th Amendment was ratified in 1870. And let me read it. The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. That was the first section. The second section reads, the Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. I'm going to drop a little footnote here. Say a little bit about the, more about the 15th Amendment. And I'm, I'm prompted to do that because so often when we think about federal law, we take federal constitutional provisions as if they came down from heaven. As if they had to be the way they are. And many Americans view these constitutional provisions reverentially, as if they're holy writ, as if they're so great. Of course, the constitutional amendments, just like every other thing that's made by humans, has a history. The 15th Amendment has a history, too. The 15th Amendment was a product of compromise. In fact, of the various constitutional provisions that were before the Congress, the 15th Amendment that we live under was among the narrowest, among the most conservative, among the most compromised. The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Doesn't say anything about gender, does it? After the 15th, after the 15th Amendment, women were still out. Doesn't say anything about property. The state wanted to say, well, you had to have a certain amount of property in order to vote. Does the 15th Amendment prohibit that? No. Doesn't say anything about literacy. When the 15th Amendment was ratified, there were people in 1870 who said right out, you know, this is going to be pretty easy to evade. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. The great mass of black people in 1870 lacked education. Of course, the great mass of them had been 
prohibited from being educated by dint of slavery. They didn't have property. So you didn't you you could you could very easily get rid of a lot of black voters if you wanted to by property qualifications, by literacy qualifications. And that was known at the time. But the 15th Amendment was still um, promulgated, in part because the people who promulgated the 15th Amendment wanted to exclude big hunks of the American voting population. Women, of course, but also immigrants, also working people. So we got the 15th Amendment that we have. And I wanted just to put that in there because, again, so often we, you know, 15th Amendment, people start, you know, beating drums, blowing trumpets. Many of the problems that I'll be talking about that are so related to the Voting Rights Act stem from the weakness of the 15th Amendment. Okay, end of that footnote. The, 15th, uh, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was passed by Congress, signed into law by the president, as a type of, quote, appropriate legislation. Remember Section 2 of the 15th Amendment expressly arms Congress with the power to enforce the 15th Amendment by, quote, appropriate legislation. So the idea was this is appropriate legislation. Question. Was this unprecedented legislation? Was this the first time that Congress had sought to enforce the 15th Amendment through legislation? Answer, no. Congress had had attempted to enforce the 15th Amendment uh, previously. It did this for the first time probably in 1870, the Enforcement Act. Congress passed the Enforcement Act, passed successors to the Enforcement Act during Reconstruction in an effort to prevent states and private parties from excluding blacks from participating in governance as voters and as officeholders. And for a period during Reconstruction, this federal effort really bore important fruit. In the 1870s and the 1880s, Throughout the southern United States, there were black sheriffs. There were black uh, um, uh, officers at all levels. In the Congress, the local level, state level, chiefs of education in various states, And this was enabled during the Reconstruction period because of strong federal support, including military support. Um, But Reconstruction came to an end tragically. And from the end of Reconstruction, which is usually the, the, the date for the end of Reconstruction is usually put at 1877, From the 1870s, from the end of Reconstruction until the middle of the 20th century, the government, the federal government, basically turned its back on widespread disfranchisement in the South. There was an article in the Harvard Law Review with the following title is the 15th Amendment law, suggesting that actually, given what's happened, maybe the 15th Amendment doesn't really amount to anything. And there was a period, there was a period of time when which that was, you know, that was a, a real question, whether the 15th Amendment would ever again amount to anything. The federal government, at every level, turned its back. The Congress turned its back in 1894. It... Um, 
rescinded uh, laws that it had passed previously that tried to support the freedmen in their efforts to participate in self-governance. The Supreme Court got into the act too, Giles versus Harris, 1908. Supreme Court of the United States, an opinion written by Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, basically said, let's suppose the state of Alabama has engaged in a conspiracy to deny black people the vote. Is there anything that we, the Supreme Court, can do about it? His response was, no, there's nothing we can do about it. This is a political question. The federal government did not really come back into this area until the 1950s. The first federal civil rights statute after the end of Reconstruction, was the Civil Rights Act of 1957, which gave the the Department of Justice authority to attack various schemes of disfranchisement. Then in 1960, uh, Congress passed another civil rights law that gave more power to the Department of Justice. Uh, More power yet was given in 1964. 1964 Civil Rights Act is mainly known through because of Title II and Title VII, the provisions that prohibit racial discrimination in places of public accommodation and racial discrimination in place in, in employment. But there was also a provision in the 1964 Civil Rights Act that was devoted to voting. The problem was that, at least with respect to the Civil Rights Act of 1957 and the Civil Rights Act of 1960, though they did something, um, they didn't do a whole lot. The price for those two provisions becoming a law at all was that they were essentially defanged. White supremacists in the South said, okay, we'll allow these to become law, but we will neuter them in the process. So, next question. Why did there have to be a Voting Rights Act of 1965? I said that the 15th Amendment was promulgated in uh, 1870. There was the Enforcement Act of 18, there was the Enforcement Act of 1870. Then there was the, these, you know, Civil Rights Act 57, Civil Rights Act 60, Civil Rights Act 64. After all that, why did we have to have a Voting Rights Act? Well, I'm going to read what I think to be a really good response to that question. It comes from an address made by Lyndon Baines Johnson on March 15, 1965, when he told Congress that he was going to send to Congress within two days the legislation that became the Voting Rights Act of 1965. This is what Lyndon Johnson had to say, and it's a direct and I think succinct, and I think very vivid, memorable response to the question, why did we have to have a Voting Rights Act of 1965? This is partly, this is what he had to say. In many places in this country, men and women are kept from voting simply because they are Negroes. Every device of which human ingenuity is capable has been used to deny this right. The Negro citizen may go to register only to be told that the day is wrong or the hour is late or the official in charge is absent. And if he persists and if he manages to present himself to the registrar, he may be disqualified because he did not spell out his middle name or because he abbreviated a word on the application. And if he manages to fill out an application, He is given a test. 
The registrar is the sole judge of whether he passes this test. He may be asked to recite the entire Constitution or explain the most complex provisions of state laws. And even a college degree cannot be used to prove that he can read and write. For the fact is that the only way to pass these barriers is to show a white skin. That's what LBJ said in justification for the law that he was about to present to the Congress. The fact of the matter is that, as the president said, a lot of effort, a lot of imagination was deployed in trying to prevent blacks from voting. There was the grandfather clause. Grandfather clause basically was a way what happened with often people don't really the the grandfather clause was a clause was a a device in which uh, white supremacist jurisdictions would elevate very high standard would elevate the requirements for voting. From now on, in order to be a voter, you're going to have to do this, you're going to have to do this, you're going to have to do this, you're going to have to do this. Except, except, if you had a grandfather who could vote as of 1860, Well, guess who had grandfathers who could vote as of 1860, and guess who did not have grandfathers who could vote as of 1860? The grandfather clause. It was a way of exempting white people from these enhanced requirements for voting. Or then there was the white primary. White primary basically said... um, excluded black people from participating in primary elections. Black people, you, you, can, you can vote in the general election, you just can't vote in the primary. Well, of course, in, uh, until relatively recently, and in fact, from the end of the late 19th century until the middle of the 20th century, the South was under basically one-party rule for statewide offices, the Democratic Party. Whoever, if you were in the South, whoever won the Democratic Party primary won the election. So if black people were excluded from participating in the primary, they might as well not participate at all. It took several decades to uproot the the white primary. And then there were all sorts of other ruses, all sorts of other devices. Uh, There were all sorts of requirements, let's say literacy tests, or an understanding test, a knowledge test. Doesn't say anything about race. It's not in violation of the 15th Amendment, right? It's just that we're going to have a registrar, and if the registrar thinks that you know enough, you can become a voter. Well, you know, somebody could be as knowledgeable as Ralph Bunch or Thurgood Marshall, and they didn't know enough. Or as my father used to put it, these registrars would ask white people, can you spell cat? They'd ask black people, can you spell chrysanthemum? Widespread racial discrimination, racial exclusion in the administration of laws that on their face said nothing Uh, about race. Now, by 1965, the federal government, through these Civil Rights Act of 57, Civil Rights Act of of 1960, Civil Rights Act of 1964, had started litigating these cases and started attacking, the Department of Justice had started attacking these various modes of racial discrimination. And they would win, they would win, they would win some of these cases. 
But by 1965, it had become very clear that things were just moving too slowly. Why were things moving too slowly? Because case-by-case litigation moves slowly. In the, um, when the uh, Attorney General testified to Congress before the, you know, in, when, when they were deliberating about the Voting Rights Act, the Attorney General estimated that it took 6,000 man hours to prepare for a trial. A trial in one of these cases. 6,000 man hours, that's, that's a lot. That's very expensive. It's very time consuming. Then, of course, let's suppose you win and you get a judgment. What would happen? The very next day, the registrar or other local officials would come up with some new ruse, some new mode of exclusion. Let's suppose you attack that and you win. Even when you win, so you've won in one county, what about the next county? What about the county after that? The problem was that case-by-case litigation was just going very slowly. Nothing much was happening. Selma, Alabama, in the very county, Dallas County, where Selma, Alabama is situated, the Department of Justice for four years prior to 1965 had been litigating. They had been winning. Did much change? No, not much changed. And it was because of that that uh, there was a feeling, this deep feeling, urgent feeling, that something different had to be tried. And so we have the architecture of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. What's different about the Voting Rights Act of 1965? A couple of things. So let's, let's take a little bit, let's, let's sort of look a little bit more closely at it. What does it provide? Number one, it says, in a way it repeats the 15th Amendment, you can't, you know, you can't engage in racial discrimination in voting. Okay. But then it says, we know because of this history of litigation, we know that there are certain jurisdictions in which racial discrimination is pervasive and entrenched. And those jurisdictions, which are called covered jurisdictions, are going to have special rules applied to them. What were the covered jurisdictions? Well, they won't come as a surprise. There was a death, actually, there was a, there was a, a calculus used to describe the covered jurisdiction. A covered jurisdiction was a jurisdiction that had applied devices of the sort that I just mentioned as a prerequisite to voting, like a literacy test. Or another sort of test was a, a voucher. A number of these jurisdictions had vouchers. If you wanted to become a voter, you could become a voter. You just had to have a person who was already registered to vote vouch for you. Of course, if you were in a jurisdiction where you, know, you didn't have many black people who were already registered, you weren't going to have many people vouching for you. Well, the Voting Rights Act said if you are in a jurisdiction that has any of these devices and fewer than 50% of the eligible voters voted or were registered to vote for the presidential election of 1964, when those two things happen, you bring together those two things, your jurisdiction is covered. Alabama was covered, Mississippi was covered, Louisiana was covered, Georgia was covered, South Carolina was covered, Virginia was covered, and much of North Carolina was covered. Those were the covered jurisdictions. And what the Voting Rights Act of 1965 said was, with respect to those jurisdictions, we're suspending all devices. We're tired of litigating and knocking one out and then having another one pop up. We're tired of fighting this hydra. We're not going to do it anymore. 
We're just going to say for five years, at least, for five years, all of these devices are suspended. And furthermore, because we have, you know, we've seen how you guys act. We've been educated. Furthermore, we're going to say under the Voting Rights Act that if you want to impose any changes in voting, you're going to have to get permission. This is called preclearance. You're going to have to get permission from federal authorities, either the Department of Justice or the United States District Court in the District of Columbia. If they reach the conclusion that what you're, you know, any new proposals are you know, not discriminatory, they'll let you do it. But you've got to get preclearance. We're not going to let you do what jurisdictions typically do, which is you know, pass a law, and then if the law, somebody doesn't like the law, they attack the law. No, we're not going to do that because we know that's so time-consuming, and we know that you've used these devices in the past in a bad way, so we're going to essentially impose a prophylactic device. We're not going to let you just do what is typically done by jurisdictions. There was a third thing the Voting Rights Act did, and it's basically said, another thing we're going to do is we're going to uh, deputize federal authorities to go to jurisdictions and register people if the local authorities just don't. So we're going to supersede local authority by federal authority if the attorney general has a predicate for doing so. Now, the Voting Rights Act goes, you know, it's a very, it's a com- very complicated act. It's been reauthorized four times. It was reauthorized in 1970. It was reauthorized in 1975. It was reauthorized in 1982. It was reauthorized in 2006. And it's been changed a bit. We're going to focus on the 1965 Act. That's, that's, That's what it did. So we've talked about, you know, the act, reason for it. Was it resisted? Of course it was resisted. Of course it was resisted. There's never been an effort made in the United States of America to elevate the fortunes of black Americans that has not been resisted. And this one was resisted. Let me read you something that Senator Talmadge had to say about the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Quote, It is grossly unjust and vindictive in nature. It is designed not to enforce the constitutional right to vote, but to inflict severe punishment upon certain carefully selected states. What the Attorney General now seeks and desires is a law under which he can sign Hitler-like decrees. Talmadge and Senator Sam Irvin and the other white supremacists, champions of the segregation regime, fought hard against the Voting Rights Act, but... They failed. It became law. How did it do? Question. What were the consequences of the Voting Rights Act of 1965? The Voting Rights Act of 1965 proved to be very successful. In the first five years after the Voting Rights Act of 1965 went into effect, in those first five years, there were more black people registered to vote in those five years than in the entire previous century. Let me try to... Let me 
give some statistics. Just again, just to try to make this a little bit more vivid. In 1965, in Alabama, the percentage of whites registered to vote was 69%, approximately. Blacks, approximately 20%. 69%, 20%. That's 1965. In 2004, it went like this. 73% whites, approximately 73% blacks. Virtual parity. Georgia, 1965, 62% whites, blacks 27%. Georgia, 2004, larger number percentage-wise of blacks registered to vote than whites. And one could go on. In the covered jurisdictions, that is to say the jurisdictions in which racial discrimination in voting had been most pervasive, most intense, most recalcitrant, in those jurisdictions, there was a 1,000% increase since 1965 in the number of African Americans elected to office. Selma, Alabama, very much on people's minds. In 2013, the mayor of Selma, Alabama was black. Uh, let me mention another, juris- another locale that might be on people's minds. Philadelphia, Mississippi. Philadelphia, Mississippi, of course, that's a place where Cheney, Goodman, Schwerner, three great martyrs, the Civil Rights Revolution, were killed. 2013, mayor of Philadelphia, Mississippi, black. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 really did change, and change for the better, not only the South, but the entire United States. It's at this point, though, that we have a real, you know, it's just... It's just Life is like this. We have one of the great ironies. Because, of course, the success of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 has provoked a crisis. What do I mean by that? Well, in 2013... Shelby County, Alabama, challenged the constitutionality of parts of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, basically saying, things have changed. We give. We concede the Voting Rights Act. The Voting Rights Act is great, and it has changed a lot. In fact, It's changed things so dramatically that these these unusual features of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, preclearance, handling the states, these deep south states disparately, uh, handling them in a different way than we handle other states, making them go through this pre-clearance hoop. That's very unusual. And while it might have been justified in 1965, given the history of disfranchisement, it's no longer applicable today. No longer constitutional. It really, these, this, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, at least, Certain of its features, particularly this pre-clearance feature, it's at odds with our constitutional norms of federalism. Well, that 
argument prevailed. And the portion of the 1965 Voting Rights Act that demands that certain covered jurisdictions seek preclearance was struck down. And if you read the opinion, uh, Chief Justice Roberts basically says this is, you know, Voting Rights Act has succeeded. It's succeeded just dramatically. So dramatically that these sorts of provisions, he didn't actually say they weren't needed. He said, basically, if they are needed, the Congress of the United States needs to justify the continuation of these provisions in a way that it has not persuasively made that justification thus far. We're not just, we, we are not persuaded by what Congress has done. What they basically said was Congress has just frozen 1965 and just continued the thinking of 1965, the calculations of 1965, the theory of 1965, and now we're in a new world. There was a very strong dissent that was offered by Justice Ginsburg. I thought it was one of her best dissents, in which she basically says two things. Number one, she says, this really is an issue over who should get to decide this issue. Should it be the Congress of the United States, clothed with the authority of the 15th Amendment to pass appropriate legislation? Should the Congress get to decide this issue? Or should it be the Supreme Court? And she said, in her view, Congress. By the way, the last time that the Voting Rights Act was reauthorized was 98 to 0 in the Senate. And then she went on to say, and furthermore, apart from the question of sort of institutional competence, who should get the last word on this, She talked about it. She said, you know, it's true that the Voting Rights Act has been successful. It's true that it has changed things. But has it changed everything? No, it hasn't changed everything. And she went on to talk about the way in which, especially in the covered jurisdictions, it was case after case after case of purposeful racial discrimination shown in court. She went on to show that still racially polarized voting. And her argument was, in this circumstance, shouldn't we be careful? She went on to say the following. Just as buildings in California have a greater need to be earthquake-proofed, Places where there is greater racial polarization in voting have a greater need for prophylactic measures to prevent purposeful racial discrimination. She said, don't we have to be on guard against backsliding? She uses that term over and over and over. Don't we have to be careful about backsliding? Yes, we've had some success. Yes, we've had considerable success but don't we still have to be on guard? Well, she was writing in dissent. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 that has been so successful uh, has been eviscerated. And one of the things that we will see in the coming months, in the coming years, we will see whether there will be backsliding. Frankly, I hope that 
this decision by the Supreme Court, which in my view is egregiously wrong, I hope, in fact, it won't matter a whole lot. On the other hand, past is prologue. We've seen advances on the the racial front in our country before. And we've also seen backsliding before. We'll just have to wait and see. And I hope that people in this audience will be very keen observers and be very not only watchful, but if need be, uh, active as citizens in addressing future needs. I think that gets us going. Uh, The floor is open to questions, comments, and by all means, objections. Thank you very much. Yes. Well, let's talk about what kind of action then is necessary. Um, Two questions. First, as Isabel Wilkerson recently wrote in the New York Times, where we see widespread, uh, you know, Ferguson and uh, uh, black foment over the conditions of the day is actually in the north. How are we going to address racial injustices in areas far from the covered jurisdictions of the Voting Rights Act of 1965? And in answering that question, could you address the uh, alleged historical inaccuracy in Selma, which is a historical inaccuracy, which suggests that uh, Lyndon Johnson's role in the passage of the bill was rather minimal. Is it not the fact that it's necessary to have a partner in power in order to make social change that action from the street is not enough? And if so, where is that partner in power today? Well, a couple things. Um, I saw the movie Selma, and uh, I thought that it was a very fine film. Um, Certainly, you know, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to put down Hollywood, but unfortunately, there, you know, there, there are all too many films that certainly don't educate people. Uh, this film does. And I thought it was a very fine film. Uh, do I agree with all of it? No, I don't agree with all of it. Do I think that it was uh, a bit unfair with respect to Lyndon Johnson? Yes, I do. I think that, the, 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 you know, Lyndon Johnson... Um, Lyndon Johnson... was very important in the Civil Rights Revolution, more important with respect to the 1964 Civil Rights Act than the Voting Rights Act. In a way, um, the, the, the back of the segregationists had been broken a year before with the 64 Act. Uh, the Voting Rights Act, actually, in terms of the legislative history, went through v- rather quickly. Uh, Lyndon Johnson was behind the Voting Rights Act, and I think that he should be given his due. And I don't mind giving Lyndon Johnson his due. I think he, uh, Lyndon Johnson is deserving of a big salute. Uh, so I, I think that the you know I think that the filmmaker didn't give Johnson enough of its due. The speech that Lyndon Johnson gave uh, in March on behalf of the voting rights legislation that he was about to propose was a great speech. I'm, so, I, you know, I, that, that's, that's my view with respect to that. 
There's another aspect of the film, though, that I think is a really wonderful aspect of the film that has not gotten enough attention. It's true that you need people in power to help out. That, that, that helps. But at each and every point, it was pressure below that made things happen. You know, I get so tired. I'm a law professor. I'm a law professor. And when people talk about the civil rights revolution, you say civil rights revolution, oftentimes people say, oh, Earl Warren and Brown versus Board of Education. I salute Earl Warren. Earl Warren, good man. Good man. And I'm really happy about Brown versus Board of Education. Good decision. Things didn't start with any Earl Warren. There had to be a plaintiff behind those cases. And if you were a plaintiff in 1954 in the state where I was born, South Carolina, you were taking your family's lives, you were putting them at risk. You were putting your job at risk. You might have been putting your life at risk. It was tough to be a plaintiff. One of the things I liked so much about Selma was that it focused attention on people who, you know, folks don't, you know, much hear about, but who made things happen. One of the reasons why I'm interested in this subject is that I'm I'm writing a book about the Civil Rights Revolution. And I'm having a lot of, it's, it's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. And one of the reasons why it's wonderful is that writing about this subject makes me learn about people who did such remarkable things, people who for all of their lives had been smooshed down marginalized, degraded, humiliated, deprived of education, and who somehow, absolutely remarkable, somehow these people who had been pushed down for all their lives stood up. And frankly, took everybody by surprise, often including themselves. It's absolutely, it's just the most inspiring thing. And so one of the things I liked about the movie Selma is, you know, it focused attention. It, Selma focused attention on Jimmy Lee Jackson, who was killed and Viola Luzo, who was killed, and James Reeb, who was killed. And one could go further back. One of the people I most admire is a fellow, I think his name was Howard Moore. He and his wife, who was a, I'm not sure I have his first name right. His last name was Moore. He was a voting rights activist in Florida. And in the 1950s, I know it was on a Christmas day, they were celebrating his 20th wedding anniversary. He and his wife were blown up. And one could just go down the list Vernon Damer, Herbert Lee, Lewis Allen. People who died in the struggle for voting rights. Now, 
I think that Lyndon Johnson is, should get his due. These people should get their due too. And one of the things I liked about Selma is that in its way, it, it tried to shine a light on the people down below who pushed and pushed and pushed so that representatives could simply not ignore them. So I, I like the movie Selma. It's like many things. It, you know, it had, I, I think for the most part it was very fine. There were certain things about it, like I've already indicated, that you know, I didn't agree with. But oh, by and large, I thought it was a, a wonderful movie. As to the other parts of the question, you're absolutely right that we have a national problem. And by the way, in 1965, it was a national problem too. It wasn't just in Alabama that there was a fight. It wasn't just in Alabama that there was racial oppression. There was racial oppression in New York City in 1965. And in Philadelphia. And all over the United States. We've always, it's always been a national problem. Of course, in the Deep South, this national problem had its most vivid incarnation. Others, yes? Um, I was listening to what you said about the plaintiff and how difficult it was for plaintiffs to, to uh, materialize in the, in, um, in the past. But now I'm thinking about Shelby and the backslide. So do you think it's going to be easier for plaintiffs, our, our representatives of the plaintiffs, to point out the, um, the um, restrictions in, in voting practices we saw just in the last, um, and, and do a case-by-case -case litigation, and do you think it will turn into another uh, Voting Rights Act, or do you think they'll reauthorize it and then bring that that, um, what do you, how do you think it will play out? What yeah, you know, after, when, when, when um, Holder was first decided, there was talk of the Congress quickly uh, taking up the issue and creating a record that would satisfy the uh, Supreme Court. And for, you know, for, for a brief period, there was that, that hope. I don't see that happening. I don't, I don't, I don't I'm, you know, don't hold your breath. I don't think that that's going to happen anytime soon. As for what's going on around the country, and again, to get back to the earlier point about this being a national problem, that's right. Take a look at Ohio. Take a look, I mean, all around the country, not just the so-called covered jurisdictions of the Voting Rights Act, all around the country there is this extraordinary, actually, you think about it, it's so naked, it's so obvious, the voter repression that's going on this obvious effort to discourage people, to prevent people from voting. Isn't it remarkable that there hasn't been a massive reaction against that sort of thing? Regardless of your partisan affiliation, isn't it remarkable that there has not been a massive repudiation of it? It's unclear thus far how the courts are going to respond. There have been some encouraging responses. Some of these attempts have been, have been, been invalidated. But litigation is slow. It is expensive. It's very difficult to catch up. So I think that we're in for some very tough times. I think that we're in for some very tough times. Um, but... The times that we're in for 
um, I, it seems to me, you know, in, in thinking about what we should do and thinking about the future and thinking about how we should gear up, I think that our past, our history, should not only give us cautionary tales, I think that our history also should give us inspiration. Think about these people in 1962, 63, 64, what they confronted and what they were successful in doing. I think that the civil rights revolution, the civil rights movement, is a wonderfully inspiring example of what people can do with intelligent, brave, collective action. I think we should take our marching inspiration from them. Thank you.